four chapters, 104 verses, 2,183 words, written by the Apostle Paul. The date's approximately 64 AD with Ephesus because he's writing from jail, but it's, you know, I wouldn't die on that hill, but it seems it's being written around the same time as the book of Ephesus, book of Ephesians, so uh, around 64 AD. Uh, it is the first, some things about the church. First thing you want to know about the church at Philippi is that it is a Gentile church. It is the first church in Europe. Um, Acts 16.9 is Paul gets that commission to go there. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. So the first church in Europe. All right? So it's a very much a Gentile church. Um, we hear we sing songs about the Macedonian call. Well, there it is. Um, in fact, the book of Philippians has no quotations from the Old Testament in it. No Old Testament in it, uh, which kind of lends more that Gentile flavor of the book. Um, it is a letter that has very little criticism, if any, and a lot of praise. Paul seemed to really love the Philippians. He really seemed to have an affinity for the Macedonians. And it seems like he only complimented them because in Philippians 4, you see that this was a, a giving church and a generous church, even though it was a poor church. So take your excuses and stick them in your hat, because it was a church that even though they didn't have a lot of material goods, what little they had, they were willing to give to the, to the work of God, to the people of God, to the, to the man of God, Paul. Look at Philippians 4.15. He says right there, Now, ye Philippians... Know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and, re and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again unto my, my necessity. So repeatedly, this congregation was opening their, you know, their purses up, reaching into their pockets, and giving towards the financial needs of the Apostle Paul. Not once. It looks like on more than one occasion, this poor, impoverished church had such liberality of giving that Paul even uses them as examples in his other letters of what a giver and what a Christian should be in terms of giving. Uh, and uh, if you know how much God has given to you, it's easy to give to someone else. Right? If someone's got a problem with giving, they don't understand the cross. If you're holding on to that nickel so hard that it's turning into wire, then you got a problem. Right? you got a problem. So the Bible says, Give and it shall be given unto you. Uh, Philippians 4.10, you see that... Um, Epaphroditus seemed to be the, the messenger between Paul and them. He says in uh, uh, 4.10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you are also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. 18, But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. So Epaphroditus, he's a character in your Bible, he seems to be that middleman, he seems to be that, that individual in Paul's traveling party that was going to the Macedonians and bringing things back from the Macedonians. And if you go to chapter 2, I preached a message many years ago on Epaphroditus, he's a great little character in the Bible. In, uh, in Philippians 2, verse 25, you find out that Epaphroditus had been fatally ill. I mean, he had put himself out there, and he's traveling, and he got so sick they thought he was going to die. Philippians 2, 25, Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger 
and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice and that I may be the less sorrowful. So um, part of this book is letting the Philippians know that Epaphroditus is okay. Because obviously they fell in love with Epaphroditus. Paul loved Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus seemed like a great guy. We'll meet him in heaven. We probably won't be able, we probably won't be able to hold his bags at the judgment seat of Christ. But he seems like a guy that was just a quiet servant of God, like you should be. And God records him. And Paul says, you love him. I love him. He was sick. And I want you to know he's okay. And hopefully you'll see him again soon. Now, another thing. Go to chapter 1 of Philippians. So it was a Gentile church. Was a giving church. This is all introduction. And it was a glad church. You find the word joy or rejoice in every chapter. Just going to run through this. Buckle up. I'm going to go very fast. 1.4, he talks about making requests with joy. 118, 1.18, he says, I therein at the end do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Verse 25, he says, uh, having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. Uh, 126, he says that your rejoicing may be more abundant. Go to chapter 2, verse number 2. He says, fulfill ye my joy. Two, um, 2.16, he says it again, um, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. 2.18, for the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. 3-1, 3-1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. 3-3, three, three, for we are, the, uh, we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, right? Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, long for my joy and crown. 4-4, uh, four, four, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And 4-10, we just read, but now I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Wow. I mean, that's a lot of joy. <laughs> that's a lot of joy. We don't understand that because if the coffee's not done to our liking at our Starbucks stop or our Dunkin' stop or we, our life is over, our life is ruined, their day is lost, right? They didn't make my bagel bite with the cheese dripping over it the way I just like it, so our day is lost. This is a church that's poor, weak, written by a man who's sitting in a jail cell, and all they're saying back and forth to each other is, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Not in your bagel bite, not in your coffee, not in your 401k, but in your heart, because you know the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's, I'm preaching to myself, right, because we just came through a season that is predicated on covetousness. We just came through a season, and I'm a birthday boy, so I can say it, but we just came through a season that is designed to make you miserable unless you get more stuff. Even though you have all the stuff, and you have, haven't opened up the stuff that you got last year, but if you don't get more stuff, you're sunk. Your life is over. You're miserable. What was me? And this is joy going back and forth between a poor church and an apostle in a prison cell, and it's joy in every single chapter and rejoicing in every single chapter, which means that one of the main ideas of the book is joy and how to have Christian joy. And I know I got some, I know I got some former master clubbers in here. You did, we did Philippians, right? 
Some of you, you just nod your head like you remember it, yeah, even if you don't. But I remember years ago teaching on Wednesday nights in Staten Island, we went through the book of Philippians like a few months or whatever, and I remember just pounding it down. Joy, it's about Christian joy. So if there's anything you remember today, it's really about how to have Christian joy, and we'll talk about that. Um, and the la- but the last thing, you know, you can't, you can't win them all. They're also, the book of Philipp- the Philippian church also had some grumbling. If you go to 4.2, you will notice that there was some dissension in the ranks, threatening their peace. I beseech Iodias and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. It seems like two of the leading ladies in that church had a falling out. And it seems like the church kind of was splintering around these two women. That tells me two things. You want two takeaways? One, women are important to the work of God. Nobody said women weren't important to the work of God. They're very important to the work of God. They're named by name by the Apostle Paul. They're influencing the church. But I'll tell you number two, women could also destroy the work of God. Many strong men have been slain by her, the Bible says. So it's more than once that a lady and her beautiful mouth has not torn a place apart. So, and guys could tear things apart too. We're, we're all idiots. But notice that lesson from these ladies here. They're important but they're also a source of profound division in this, this church that Paul has to name them by name and say, can you, can you, can you come together again? Uh, so that leads us to another keyword that you find if you trace it. The word all is found a lot in this book, um, which brings us to another key idea in the book, the idea of unity and how to maintain Christian unity at all costs. That doesn't mean we're all like mindless Borgs, you know, uh, we all think the same thing. You know, you can like the Mets. It's okay. I'll pray for you. You know, it's all right. You know, you can like, you know, whoever you like. It's all right. I'll pray for you. But it doesn't mean we have to both like chocolate and one can like vanilla. That's okay. But when it comes to Jesus Christ and the work of God, we're supposed to be on the same page, right? We can have differing opinions, but we should at least be pointing in the same direction. Because when you lose this, you lose that. Unity and joy are are tied together. So the book of Ephesians, it's interesting where it goes, right? The book of Ephesians is all about our unity with Christ, the body, this thing that we made a part of. Remember that from a couple weeks ago? Just nod your heads. Or last week, right? Last week was Ephesians, right? Philippians is how that unity can be broken and needs to be maintained. So Ephesians shows us the unity. Philippians shows us how that unity can be broken and needs to be maintained. The key verse we read, Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Not just always, but always. Whichever way your life is going, the Bible says you can rejoice. I don't like that verse either. I don't like it either. Because I've cried in my beer many a time, even just this week. It's easy to cry in your beer. And the Lord says, Rejoice. Rejoice every way rejoice. He's writing it from a prison cell. And a Roman prison cell wasn't like a New York State or New Jersey penitentiary where you get your greens and your three squares and you know you just you're good to go and you get to go into the computer lab and go outside and be left alone while guys approach you with body cams and can't touch you. That's not what I'm talking about here. This is a nasty prison cell by a Roman Empire that probably would like to see you dead. And if Paul wasn't a Roman citizen, they might have killed him even sooner. So um, remember that. So Jesus Christ is presented as our joy in this book. The breakdown is great. You see it on your sheet there. My life, my service, my fellowship, and my peace. 
my life, suffering with Christ, my service, following like Christ, my fellowship, longing for Christ, and my peace, strengthened by Christ. So we're going to dive into each chapter now and try to pull some things out of each chapter and hope they're a blessing to you. And let's start in chapter 1. So go to chapter 1. And chapter 1 is about what do I do with my life? If we think of this book about how to have joy and how to maintain joy as a Christian, and joy isn't always happy, right? This is happy. You know, you take some prescription drugs, they'll make you feel happy. Joy is even underneath the sadness that there's a river that you know there's water there that you could get to to give you sustenance. Joy doesn't always mean you're smiling. Joy just, you know the sun will be shining one day. Right? That's joy. Joy is deeper than happiness. Happiness is like a buzz. Happiness you can get with certain large amounts of chocolate that you consume. But joy is like this, this current that you know is running underneath the surface that's there if you need it. If you could just keep digging, you'll find it. That's joy. And uh, what do I do with my life if I want to have joy? Philippians 1.6. Here's where we start. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it, until the day of Jesus Christ. If I want to have joy, I've got to start like Paul. I've got to see my Christian life as God's work in me. If I want to have joy, I've got to start by realizing, you know what? God's working on me. I may not be perfect yet. I'm far from it. Please don't say amen. Right? I'm far from it. But you know what? I'm a work in progress. I'm God's work in progress. That's supposed to encourage you. If you know Christ is working in your life, it says you can have confidence. And if you have confidence that the Lord is working, you know what? You can have joy. If you have confidence. Hey, if you knew a master architect was remodeling your home, you'd rejoice even if you were in a mess. You see the walls pulled down. You, see, you say, it's okay, it's okay. The master architect is at work. He's going to make this thing beautiful one day. And your life might be a mess. You might not understand which way is up. But if you're trying to do the best you know how as God is leading you, you can say, you know what, Lord? The great architect, the mighty architect, he's working on restoring my life. So things might be a little messy right now, but I can have joy despite the mess because I know God's working in me. I know God's working in me. Verse number 12. Verse number 12, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. I called out the Donna Veach verse. Because that was the verse. You don't know who Donna Veach was, but you know who Pastor Mike Veach was. And Pastor Mike Veach's previous wife was Donna Veach. She's married now to Margaret Veach, a wonderful lady. And before his first wife, that his first wife passed away in 2003, Donna Veach. And on her prayer card at the uh, funeral... That was the verse on the back. She died of breast cancer, struggled for it for many years, and eventually took her life in, in early 2003, April 2003. And I will forever associate that. I have it written in my Bible. Donna Veach verse. I could almost hear her saying it. But I would, you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. If you know God is working, you can rejoice even in suffering even on a sick bed. I remember going to Pastor Mike's house after Donna died and the house was full of people. I was Italian. I'd never seen anything like this. We leave the bodies out at wakes until they start to decompose. That's how long Italians like mourn and grieve for things like that. And he's encouraging me. He's encouraged, Pastor Mike's encouraging me after his wife died. 
I remember saying goodbye to Donna when she was about to pass away. A few days before she passed away, we went to sing for her, and she's holding my hand and encouraging me. You know what? That's a, that's a lady that had the right perspective. I don't think she was happy about it. I don't think she wanted to leave behind her kids, especially her little girl, Lauren. I don't think she wanted to leave them behind. But you know what? She said, you know what? This is what God's got for me. If God's working in my life, then even the things that, quote, unquote, part of my French suck, <laughs> they must be a plan and a purpose for them. And he says, guys, I know I'm in jail. Paul says, I know I'm in jail, but God's doing something so I can still have joy. Amen. Keep reading with me. Verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Woo! See, this chapter is about what do I do with my life? If you give your life to Christ, you want your life to glorify your Savior. So Paul's like, you know what? I'm giving my life to Christ. Whether they kill me or I keep living, either way, I want Christ to get the glory. That's how why he kept having joy. That's how he could keep having joy. I know I got my, my workout crew over here. No one enjoys the pain of working out unless you're a sadist or you're David Goggins. Nobody enjoys the pain and feeling awful. But you do it because you have this joy that's going to come, the gains that are going to come from the pains. That's what gives you joy. That's what keeps you going. You find joy and rejoice in the gains that come from the pains, that come from pushing your body beyond itself, beyond its comfort zone. That is the earnest expectation and hope you have as a Christian. Even when you kind of step out there and you're like, Lord, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how I can do this. God says, just do it. And there's joy waiting for you. I can give you glory because you're, you're going beyond yourself. And even though it's uncomfortable to go beyond yourself, who wants to stand on the corner of 34 and get something thrown at them? Who wants to go show up at the, at the family dinner and, and say something about Christ and everybody look at you? Who wants that? Nobody enjoys that, but you do it because you know there's this gain, this glory that's coming when you push through those things. Like pushing through those weights. you got to push through some stuff because there's glory on the other side. 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Woo! Paul, you're a jerk. Why'd you have to put that in the Bible, Paul? Because that is Paul's testimony. And until you and I get to the place Paul did in prison, you'll never have joy in your life. We'll never have joy until we get to that place, 21. You know what the businessman says? The business person, let me be politically correct. The business person says, to me, to live is wealth. The young person says, to me, to live is pleasure. Not you guys, you're all wonderful. The socialite says, to me, to live is fame, fancy parties, fun. That's what life's all about. The American says, to me, to live is my stuff, my freedom, my life. To the Christian, it's supposed to me, to me, to live is Christ. Ah, quiet. <laughs> so quiet, Grom Grasshopper. Very quiet, right? If Christ is the giver of life, shouldn't Jesus Christ be all your life? I don't mean you can't go play basketball. <laughs> I hope you do. <laughs> I watched a game again today. I watched my daughter score the game-winning basket. Just plugging that in there for you, honey. All right? You know, I enjoy it, right? Don't mean you don't enjoy your life, but Christ is your life because you're dead without him. So for me, Paul says, to live is Christ. Oh, if we can get to that place. That's chapter one. How about chapter two? So chapter one, 
is what do I do with my life if I want to have joy? Chapter 2 is what do I do with my service if I want to have joy? Because I'm supposed to be serving God. I mean, my life is supposed to be in service to Him, though it rarely is for most Christians. But let's see some things. 2-3, he says, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. If we lived that verse, we'd be an amazing church. I don't care how big it got, but if we lived that verse, we'd be a a Christ-filled church. If we could put each other first and put ourselves last. Because the servant, you see where the servant starts? The servant starts with the right attitude. The servant of Christ must start with a lowly attitude. Service begins in your mind, not with your hands or your feet. It begins in your mind. It's an attitude first. Christ had the attitude of a servant before he ever did a miracle. And you've got to have the attitude of a servant before you ever pick up a track or move a table or, you know, preach a message. You've got to have the attitude of a servant, a life that doesn't have strife, doesn't have vainglory. You say, what are those things? D.L. Moody put it this way. He said, strife is knocking others down. Vainglory is setting yourself up, right? Strife is me putting you down, and vainglory is me lifting myself up. The Bible says, let nothing be done through strife. We shouldn't be knocking each other down, or vainglory, we shouldn't be puffing each other ourselves up. If we didn't do those two things, you know where we stay? Right where God wants us to stay. Nice and humble, nice and humble. And if you want joy, right, we say if you want J-O-Y, you got to put Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. And your Adamic nature screams inside you right now, I don't like that. You sound like a barbarian. He sounds like such an ogre. Why are you going to do that? Why are you going to say that? I That's your Adamic nature. I can hear it inside you right now because it's screaming at me. Your Adamic nature says, I want to feel good. I want what I want. Why can I? Right? Put Jesus. If you want joy, Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Doesn't it feel good to put yourself last? Go do something for somebody else. When you're feeling low and you're crying in your beer, go do something for somebody else. Text somebody, send somebody a card, pray for somebody, go bring something to somebody, make them feel good. You know what? You go there dragging your feet, you come back clicking your heels. Right? That's just the Christian way. Right? Now look at 5 to 11. I'm not going to read 5 to 11 all the way through, but it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we got to start with a lowly attitude. And we must never forget to follow the Lord's example. Philippians 2, if you don't have it memorized, start learning it. Because Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, that's the model servant right there. That's the model servant. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You'll notice in verses 7 to 8, you'll notice that Jesus Christ takes seven steps down. You see Christ's humiliation in verses 7 and 8, right? He just keeps going down, down, down. And then verses 9 to 11, you see the Lord lifts his son up, up, up. You see Christ's humiliation in verses 7 to 8, and then Christ's honor in verses 9 to 11. You know what that teaches me? What it should teach you. The way up is down. If you want to get exalted, you get down. (laughs) He that humbles himself shall be exalted. (laughs) But if you exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. (laughs) So follow Christ's example. 
get put yourself down that God may lift you up, right? Verse 12, verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as, um, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Please notice there that if you want to serve God, all you got to do is work out what God's working in. You don't have to manufacture something. You don't have to manufacture something. You have to just manifest someone. Sometimes you think, I got to manufacture this feeling. I got to manufacture this feeling. No, no, you just got to manifest your Savior. You just got to let Him take the lead. He's working in you. There's joy there because you're serving out of just submission, not slavery. You don't have to build the pyramid out of bricks. You just got to let the Savior have His way. He's working. He just says, okay, get out of my way, son. Just get out of my way, and I'll do the work. You say, how? Have a little faith, he says. Walk by faith, not by sight. But if you just get out of the way, God says, Christ is working inside you. He lives inside of you. Just kind of yield. You don't have to manufacture, but manifest somebody. Just let him out. Just let him have his way. Just yield. You know what that gives me? Joy. I remember being a new, new Christian, and I put all these burdens on me. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do this. You know what it was? It was slavery. It was bondage. I put myself in bondage. But the Lord gave me this grace one day to say, hey, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be free. I just got to love God and let him love me, and he'll take care of the rest. And that was liberating. That was freedom. I got to go to church. And I gotta do this. And Pat's saying I gotta go to jail. And I gotta have this. And I can't ever have my smoothie king again, right? <laughs> Next time I gotta bring it for the whole place because everybody wants one now, right? But you can enjoy your life. Just get out of God's way. That's what. It, that's freedom. That's joy in service because it's like, Lord, what do you want here? Well, I want you to do this. Okay, right? You don't have to figure it out. You just gotta check in with Him and let Him have His way. Look at fourteen. Do all things, oh boy, right, Adriana? Do all things without murmurings and disputings. This is a verse that we memorize together. I'm just, that's not her. She doesn't need it. I need it. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. He said, if you want to shine, you've got to maintain your glow. You know how you maintain your glow? Stop complaining. 2.14. Do all things. All things? Even listen to Pat? Yeah, do all things. Don't complain about me. Right? Do all things without murmurings and disputing. Stop fighting with each other. Stop complaining. You know who complained a lot? You know who the first complainer was? Remember the Garden of Eden? How come you couldn't have this tree? Why didn't God let you have this tree? I don't know why he didn't let me have that tree. You're right. You're right. Where'd he go? Where'd the serpent go? I don't know. I want to have this tree. Right? It all started with complaining. Seeing the glass half empty, seeing what God kept from you, seeing what a big meaning he is, that he let you have your special little treat. That's what the devil, that's how he works. He's the first complainer. He incites that complaining spirit. God says, you want to have joy? Does anybody feel good after a complaining session? If you are, you're weird because nobody feels better. You feel good because you're yelling and you're getting off your chest, but you don't feel better. You feel miserable. You feel dirty. You feel soiled. You don't feel like you're shining with the love of Christ. You're just dull with the complaints of Satan. Amen. 15, he says, be blameless. Don't sound like Satan and don't seem like Satan. Don't complain 
and don't be so disobedient. Try to keep yourself. doesn't say sinless. It says blameless. Meaning you might make a mistake, you apologize, you make it right. That's how you can keep yourself blameless. Right? The Bible says a pastor is supposed to be blameless. When you meet a sinless pastor, you might be talking to the Antichrist. I don't know what that is. But nobody's sinless. I'm certainly not sinless. But we're supposed to try to keep ourselves blameless. Right? Keep ourselves beyond ill repute. And when we make a mistake, apologize and kind of fix it. That's blameless. The Bible says be blameless. So why? So you can keep shining. Right? Because brethren, you're in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. You're in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, and it's more perverse than you realize. It's more perverse than the evening news will ever let be aired across the evening news. There is spiritual wickedness in high places at work in God bless the United States that would make some of you make your hair stand up if you knew what kind of wickedness was going on in back doors and back deals and all the stuff that's underneath the surface. It's wicked, and you're swimming in that swamp. And I don't mean D.C., I just mean everywhere. You're swimming in that swamp. Stop complaining. And stop taking, being blamed, right? 16, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So um, think about that. How much of what believers do is in vain, right? How much of what, he, what we do is uh, meaningless, worthless, uh, petty, Right? Think about that. How much do we do is just empty. We do all this stuff in vain. You know, if you run a marathon backwards, you're running in vain. Now, for all my knees over toes guys, we know backwards walking improves knee stability and strength. I got that. I did my backwards treadmill today. Don't worry. But you know what? If I'm trying to go that way and I'm running this way, I'm wasting my time. And I'm wasting my energy. Oh, I'm exerting effort. I'm breaking a sweat. I'm tripping over a three-year-old. I'm doing all the stuff by running backwards. Yeah, I'm doing something. I'm active, but I'm not getting anywhere I'm supposed to be. I'm not getting closer to the goal. I'm not getting closer to the end of the race. And how many Christians are running their race in vain? Oh, they're busy. They're active. They're, they're oh, I got no time for this. I got no time for that. Because the famous three words, I'm too busy or I'm so busy, in which I say, yes, you are too busy. If you don't have time for church and you don't have time for Bible and you don't have time for God, you are too busy. You need to unbusy yourself before God starts unbusying yourself for you. But you know what? A lot of Christians are busy. Oh, we're busy, 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 busy. You know what we're doing? We're just, we're running in reverse. We're just, we're not getting any closer to God. We're not getting any closer to the goal. We're breaking a sweat. We got no time left at the end of the day. Oh, we're busy, busy, busy. Your calendars are full but we're wasting time and energy. Paul says, you want to get to the end of this thing and say, God doesn't look at it and say, you were running backwards. You wasted all that time and energy. You know how much talent is in this little room right now? How much ability is in this little room right now? You know how much we could do right now if we had 20 or 30 people that were sold out for God? But we're, oh, I'm so busy, Pat. So busy. Got to get to this, and I got to have lunch with my third cousin, and I'm, you know, I got to do that shuffleboard game. I know you're so busy with so many things you got to do. Maybe you need to unbusy a little bit before God unbusies yourself for you. Woo! I got worked up a little pump there. I feel good, right? Chapter three. All right? You're all staring back at me like, that's, you scare me. All right? Chapter three. What do I do with my fellowship? All right? The things that I desire, the things I want to be a part of, right? If I want to have joy, 
if I want to have joy. Um, 3 8. 3 8. Uh, verses 3 to 8. Paul talks about himself 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Uh, he's talking about himself. He's talking about his background. He's talking about his Jewish heritage. You know, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, verse 5. A Pharisee, verse 5. Right? Then he says in verse 8. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. First thing I notice is that Paul, Paul reckoned, he reckoned or he counted or he realized that his old life was no better than a pile of dung. And if you don't know what dung is, ask Andrew Eshner, right? You're right? Dung is, you know what it is, right? It's metal muffins, it's all that good stuff. Just head up to the, you know, go to the farm and just take a deep whiff and, oh yeah, you know, just head to down Colt's Neck area, get near the horse stables and take a deep breath and, oh, dung, yes, that's dung, dung. You know, you're going to get out in the spring and you want to make some stuff grow, you're going to dung it, right? You're going to put some good old natural fertilizer down, right? That's what he says of his whole religious life. It was dung. Now, I grew up playing an Atari 2600, right? Anybody else grew up playing a 2600, Atari 2600? Amen, sister. Amen. Atari 2600, we had a joystick, we had one button, and we were happy. We were happy as pigs in dung. You know, we, were just, we had one joystick and a button, and man, it was like the most amazing. And the, the screen moved when I moved the joystick and pressed the button. But you know what? After I watched them play an Xbox or PS5, I'm like, wow, that, that Atari 2600 was, that's pretty dumb. That's, that, that is not, that's, that's, you know, you guys are like doing right flanks and sniping people with like real graphics and like looks so real that you might actually do it to somebody one day and not feel anything. But anyway, um, but if all you've known, <laughs> if all you've known is religion and then you have a relationship with Christ, you should be like, wow, that religion? That's dung. I mean, that, that's garbage. That's nothing. That's like hot garbage over there. Who wants that when I got a relationship with Christ? Who wants an Atari 2600 when you got, you know, full color, three-dimensional, amazing graphics and stereo sound with actors voicing over on your Xbox X or your PS5, whatever it is. Paul, don't correct me. I'm just, I'm, I'm freewheeling it over here. But you know what? We got all this stuff and like, wow, it's so vivid. It's so real. Hey, who wants to go back to religion after you had a real relationship with Christ? Amen. You'd be like, Paul, hey, that was dung. That was nothing. That wasn't good. 3.13, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Secondly, Paul reckoned and then Paul realized. He says, you know what, man? He says, I have got to let go of the past and go forward. Have you realized that yet? Are you watching the home? Have you realized that yet? Some of us are holding on to the past and refusing to move on when God said move on five years ago. God said go forward five years ago, and you're like, no, I'm going to hold on to my hurt. I'm going to hold on to my offense. I'm going to hold on to it because I feel good swimming in my own stew. God says, let it go. Let it go and go forward. No, no, no. Because you've grown comfortable to your pain. You've grown acquainted with your hurt. And you cozy up to that because it's your little victim shield you could put on. And you can kind of deflect everybody. And you can shame everybody because I've got my hurt and I've got my pain. And how dare you, Pat, say I should let it go and move on. You know who said it? The Holy Spirit said it. Holy Spirit said, hey, when it's time, put that down. Doesn't mean you forget it. Just means you let it go 
and you go forward because there's something in front of you. Stop looking. Satchel Paige was a great pitcher for the Yankees many years ago. He said, never look back because somebody might always be gaining on you, right? And you keep looking back, Christian. It's hard to go forward when you're always looking back. Go forward. Go forward. And now in the rest of this chapter, Paul addresses his new longings, his new desires, his new fellowship that he wants. Look at verse 8. He says, man, he says in verse 8, all right, he says, that I may win Christ. He says, I want to win Christ. Christ had won him. Now he says, I want to win Christ. Christ won me when I got saved on the road to Damascus. Now I want to win a little more more of him every day. That's a good desire to have now. Verse 9, he says, I want to be found in him. I want to be all in. I want to be completely for Christ. I want to be all in. You want to be all in? Paul want to be all in. How about verse number 10? He says, that I may know him. You know, there's degrees to knowing a person, right? I may know your wife casually, but I don't know her like her husband knows her that intimately, that personally, that closely. And you may know Christ as your Savior. Tell me some things about Him. But Paul wasn't content with just being saved. Paul wanted more intimacy, more proximity. He wanted to be closer to Christ. He wanted to be closer to you. That's a new... You want joy? That's the fellowship you're supposed to be looking for. How about verse 11? Verse 10. The rest of verse 10. And the fellowship of His sufferings, He wanted to die to Himself. He didn't care if they whipped his back as long as he was following his Savior. He just wanted to die to himself, be made conformable unto his death. Why? Because if he knew the less of Paul there is, the more of Christ there'll be. And that's a good place to want to be. It's a mature place to want to be, but that's where we're supposed to be going for. How about verse 11? That I, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now, that's a troublesome verse for some people. They think, does that mean Paul was hoping he'd get resurrected? Does that mean Paul was hoping he'd make it to the rapture? Possibly. Maybe it means that Paul's saying, I'm hope I make it to the rapture. But what I think it means, and, you know, I could try to bear that out, Paul longed for the glory that would come at the resurrection. He's like, I, I want to attain unto that resurrection. I know God's got this blessed hope when he comes back. I know when I get resurrected, I'm going to get this new body. It's going to be glorified. I want to attain unto that. That's my goal. That's my compass. That's my north. That's what I'm striving for. I want to reach for those things, that prize. Verse number 12. Not as though I had already attained. Either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Paul wanted to know why God saved him on the road to Damascus. Hey, Paul. Paul says, Lord, you you stopped me. You knocked me off my horse. You apprehended me. You arrested me. You seized me. I want to know why you did that. I want to grasp why you grasped me. I want to capture why you captured me. Don't you want that? We've got a generation of people, and I teach high schoolers for 22 years, so I could say this with a little bit of ethos behind it. We've got a lot of teenagers out there in the public schools and all kinds of schools. They don't know why they're alive. And when you don't know why you're alive and you feel pain, sometimes you want to just put yourself out of your misery with a drug or something worse. Happens all the time, right? And it's sad and it's tragic and it's horrible. Why? 
Because when you lose the why for living, it's hard to keep going in such a difficult world as this. God says, Paul says, I want to know the why. Guys, do you know the why? Amen. You know why you're sitting here? It's not by accident. You know why you're alive? It's not by accident. Amen. You know why God saved you? It's not by accident. Amen. He's got a purpose for your life. He's got a reason for you breathing or else you wouldn't be breathing. Amen. Paul says, I want to know what that reason is. Don't you? I want to know. Amen. I want to know. I remember being a lost kid and being like, why am I alive? I had thoughts of suicide. Why am I alive? I used to, you know, philosophically, I wasn't actually going to do it, but I would sit there and I'd sit there on a train platform and go, what, why don't I jump in front of this train? What's the point? Right? What's the point? I had that philosophical crisis. When I was 20 years old, I wasn't actually going to do it. But hey, if you think rationally and logically, if I'm just a cosmic burp, if I'm just chemicals swimming around with no purpose in existence, and all you're telling me is I'm going to grow old and die and get sick, what's the use of anything? Paul says... There's a bigger purpose. There's a higher plane. There's something beyond the blue God's got for you. Don't you want to know what the God of the universe has in store for you? Don't you want to know what the God of heaven could do with you? Paul says, I want to know. And I hope you want to know too. Verse number 14. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You know what I think is going on right now in the church? I think the devil is called a full court press. All right, basketball fans. When it's close, like Adriana's game was close, 15, four seconds left, they're up by one. You know, I turned to this guy, this other dad, I said, what do you think, what kind of press do you think they're going to run? I said, I think they're going to run a man press. I said, yeah, me too. Right? They, they, you didn't run a man press. You did like a little different thing. Right? But anyway, you know, they press. They, everybody got somebody. And they got all up on each other. They got right on everybody's hip. They didn't give any space, any room to breathe because they didn't want the enemy to score. And I think right now the devil is pressing the church because he knows his time is short. He's got four seconds on the clock. He knows you're about to win the game. And he's like, I do not want to see them happy. I do not want to see them win. So you know what he's doing? He's called a buy. He's calling a diamond, whatever he's calling. He's calling a press. And he's right up on our faces and he's hitting you on all fronts. We're supposed to be the ones pressing. We're supposed to press toward the mark. We're supposed to exert some effort and strive for something greater. Paul says, I don't care what, if you're pressing, that means something's pushing back, right? There's opposition. It's not easy. Something's pressing him. So he's like, I'm pressing through. I'm pushing through. I want to, I want the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I want the higher prize. I want to work for it. I want to strive for it. I don't want anything to stop me from getting it. You go to the arcade, right? Back in my day, you went to the arcade, you just grabbed a bunch of quarters, and you just got your name on the high score somewhere, and you had a little swag, and you just walked away like, yeah, there I am, Pat, P-A-T. There's always three letters. I could always put P-A-T. You know, that's me. That's my high score, yeah. Now, you get tickets at these fake arcades. You spend $45 skee-ball, and you get 300 tickets. And the eraser that looks like a dinosaur is 50 tickets. But the dinosaur that's as big as your grandmother, that's like 50,000 tickets. And you know what? You'll keep playing sometimes and exerting effort because you know what? You don't want the stupid little eraser. You want the full-size dinosaur that's as big as your grandmother. You want that big thing, right? So you keep working. You keep striving because you want the prize. You got me? Paul says, I'm not complacent with the little eraser. I don't want just a little bit of the Lord in my life. I want the whole prize. I want the big prize. I want all God has for me. I'm going to exert some effort to try to get the greater prize because I want to win the big prize. How about you? How about you? 
You happy to just have a little bit? Or you want all God has for you? All God wants to give you? All God could do through you? Am I speaking to anybody tonight? I hope so. I know it's rainy and hot and tired. I know it's been a long week and a long day. But I mean, Paul says, I'm going to keep pressing. You do it for your waistline. You'll do it for your promotion. You'll do it for all these other things. And God says, I got riches that don't fade away. And we're like, all right, is he almost done? Oh, yeah. Riches that moth and rust doth not corrupt. And mansion, mansion of heaven. Yeah. Crowns and, yeah, crowns. Crown, how are they? Five crowns? Yeah, five crowns. Something like that. Crowns. I mean, if you could imagine how exciting it is to get that PS5 with those 50 million tickets you won playing skee ball for the next 45 years, right? Could you imagine what God has waiting for you? If you gave your next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever you have left, just to Jesus, you think he's not got a prize waiting for you? A, a prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus? Chapter 3, verse 20. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Right? Paul knew our real life was up there. He's like, I'm seated up there. I got a new body waiting for me up there. Do you realize that? That that's where your life is? You're sitting here in Aberdeen, New Jersey, but right now God says you're really up there. So your hope should be there. Your new body's up there. You know, Jesus Christ lived on this earth for 33 years, but he never naturalized as a citizen. He never got comfortable here. He never thought this was his home. We sing a song, my citizenship's in heaven, I'm living in Christ, you see. I'm already there in Jesus, I'm waiting on my body to be. That's the perspective that you're supposed to be, that's the fellowship. And chapter 4, very quickly, chapter 4, is what do I do with my peace? Where does it come from? How do I get it? The whole world is after peace, right? Here's some clues how to get it, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. You know how you get your peace? Number one, remember the Lord is coming. That means you don't get tossed by extremes. Christians get tossed by extremes. Don't get tossed by extremes. Just keep on keeping on, like Pastor Mel would say. Just keep on keeping on. Keep doing what God said to do. Try to take a little more inches next time. Just keep going forward. Keep going forward. Don't get caught with extremes and this. Get caught up in these side issues, you know, side things, side... Don't just keep on the straight and narrow way. Verse 6, here's another thing to do. Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Number one, remember the Lord is coming. Number two, make your request to the Lord. Don't worry about anything. We talked about it on Sunday. If he said be careful for nothing, that means you could pray about everything. Pray about the spouse, pray about the job, pray about the future, pray about getting over the past. Just pray about everything. Lay it all at his feet. He'll help you with it. That'll help give you peace. Number three, verse eight. Finally, my brethren... Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Ruminate on the right things. God says, guard your thoughts. Garbage in, garbage out. If all you think about is garbage, 
You're going to feel like garbage. If all you think about is what you don't have, you're not going to be happy. If all you think about is God, His promises, you know what that might do? That might turn a frown upside down. But God told you, think on the right things. Don't let your mind wander. Don't daydream because your mind is wicked and your mind is evil. And those daydreams will take you down trails that you don't want to follow, especially if you're a little bit older. You have a lot of stuff up there that's just swimming around and it's not godly and it's not good. So you got to say, no, that's not right. That's not of God. And think on God's thoughts. Verse 9. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Hey, receive the right examples. That's number four. Remember, request, ruminate, receive the right examples. Follow the right people. <laughs> hey, the guy that comes to church every other month, that's not my role model. The person I see there is always there, seems like has a decent family, seems like is involved, seems like they love God. I want to find out what that person's got. I want to get to know that person. I want to maybe shoulder up with that person. I want to serve alongside that person. He's, Paul says, hey, you saw me? You saw what I did? Follow that as I follow Christ and the God of peace shall be with you. Right? We got so many bad examples. Find some good ones. How about verse 11? Not that I speak in respect of one, for I have learned in that whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. That all things is the all things of verse 12. That's when you got a lot, when you got a little. He says, reckon yourself content despite the circumstances. Whether I got a lot or I got a little, I'm okay. I'm good. God's with me. God loves me. God's all right, Stephen. God's with me. And he's a hit him, right? right? God's with me. God's on my side, right? And whatever it is, God's with me. Whether I'm sleepy or awake, whether I'm happy or sad, God is with me, right? He says, reckon that. Despite the circumstances, reckon yourself content even in prison. Because Paul's writing this from jail. He says, I know. The good times taught me. You know what, guys? The bad times teach you too. Amen. They probably teach you more than the good times. Because in the good times, you forget God. Amen. In the bad times, you learn to lean on God. He says, I've been instructed both to be abased and to abound in all things. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. The fact that I know God gets me through the times of plenty and the times of drought lets me know that I'm okay. And Christian, you're okay. Amen. You're okay if you've got Christ. You're okay. And it's going to be okay. I know the walls look like they're falling in and look like the stars are falling from heaven and you'll never get through this night, but the day is coming. Amen. You're okay. Amen. You're okay. You're okay. Remember that. And then lastly here, verse 19, he says, But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Last thing to give you peace is rely on the Lord's provision. Because you can never outgive God. We said, they were a giving church, right? And it's to the giving church that God said, I'll take care of you. I don't know if that means if you're not a giver, God's going to take care of you. I mean, I know He'll always take care of you, but He says, you want the riches? You've got to be a giver. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure pressed down, God says. He says, I'll give you more than you could ever imagine. You could never outgive God. Amen. So if you're giving to God the best way you know how, He 
He'll supply all your need according to his riches. That gives you peace. All right, two big ideas from the book, then we'll be done. I'll hurry through these two, two big ideas. Number one, all right, go back to Philippians 1. I like to end with some big ideas. And here's the first big idea. Big idea. If you want joy, you want to maintain unity. It starts with your mind. If you want to have joy and maintain unity, it starts up here before it ever starts out here. You see how many references there are to the mind? Look at 127. 127 says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind. You've got to have to have this mind to stand fast. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded. At the end of the verse, of one mind. Verse 3, lowliness of mind. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You've got to have the right mind. Chapter 3, verse 15. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus-minded. Verse number 19 he talks about people that are minding earthly things. They're going to end up in shame. You'll be ashamed if all you're thinking about is earthly things. Chapter 4, verse 2. He says, chapter 4, verse 2. He says, I beseech Yodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Verse 7. The peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds. Right? If you want to have joy and maintain unity, it starts with your mind. You've got to make up your mind to do this God's way and follow what God says. Make up your mind. Joy, you got to work at. Don't just fall down from heaven like pixie dust. Like, oh, I hope, hope it's a good day. No, you're not out of control. You got to decide, hey, Lord, here's what you said. Here's the promise you gave me. I may not feel great right now, but you know what? Joy cometh in the morning. you got to find something to hold on to, something to stand on, something that's from God to think about. Second big idea. If you want joy, you have to maintain unity at all costs. Maintain unity as believers. Now the Bible says in Ephesians 4, we read it last week. It starts talking about your walk. And he says in Ephesians 4 about your walk. I'm going to flip back there and read Ephesians 4. He says, uh, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, Ephesians 4.1, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, and with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says, your walk... He doesn't say that in chapters 1, 2, and 3 because that's all about the mystical body union you have with Christ. He says that in chapter 4 because that's down where you live. That's where you've got to live tomorrow, today, this afternoon, tomorrow morning, where you've got to live Sunday morning where you're rubbing shoulders against your brethren. That's where you've got to live. You know what? We're going to get on each other's nerves. We're going to step on each other's toes and you've got to work at maintaining unity. Endeavor, strive, make it your goal to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace.
That's my goal. That's my thing. That's what I'd be striving for. You want to see how many times he admonishes you to maintain unity? Look at uh, 127 again. I'll give you a few verses, then we'll be done. 127. He says right there. He says, Stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together. Working together, not against each other. Working together, not as separate little cells that you could brag on one another, but together as a body, right? The white blood cell doesn't say, <laughs> those stupid platelets. All they do is get clogged up together. We fight the infections. You know, we're the white blood cell. No, they're working together to keep the body healthy, to keep the body growing, right? It's not, well, this guy's doing this, and look at that one, and this. No, it's all supposed to be together, working together, striving together. Not your little thing, your little ministry, the body. Not what I did versus what she did, the body, the body, the body. If your little thing gets ahead of the body, your little thing, no matter how good it sounds, is wrong. It can't hurt the body. It's supposed to be striving together. This was a divided church, not because they were in sin or in false doctrine, because they were factions. I want to do it this way. Well, I think we should do it this way. Well, I'm with Iodius. Well, I'm with Syntyche. They were both good ladies in the church, and I bet they were both doing a good thing, but they were at odds with each other, and the church was divided because people in the church that should have known better were not working together. They were working against each other. They were talking bad about each other. It was a faction in the church among God-fearing, Bible-loving brethren. Look, 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 look. Um, two, two. Fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord. That doesn't mean you got out of the same Honda. That means you got this agreement that we're going to do this together. We're working together. We're moving together. Look at chapter 316. 3.16. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. <laughs> Let's measure this the right way. Well, you've got your standards, I've got my standards. You're carnal, I'm spiritual. You're spiritual, I'm carnal. You know, we create these little measuring rods for each other. That's wicked, right? Let's walk by the same rule. You know what the measure is? Christ. And we all come short. So let's tuck our pride in our back pocket and let's just go on together, right? Keep going. Look at 4.1. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. He says in verse 2, I beseech Yodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. He tells them, be of the same mind. He says, guys, you're the prize. You're my joy. You're my crown. The ministry's people. So let's work together. It's not about how many got saved and how many came to church and how many in Sunday school and how much was given out. No, it's about, are we growing together? That's the whole purpose of the body, Ephesians 4, till we all come in the unity of faith unto the measure of a perfect man. That's the measure. That's the rule. That's the goal. That's the desire. Is that yours? Is that the unity you're endeavoring to maintain? You're endeavoring to keep? Do you notice how wise Paul is? And I'll finish with this. He doesn't address the problem in the church till the end. He lets the whole book go by. 
He fills their mind with all these great things about God, about Jesus Christ, about his life, their peace, joy. And then at the end, he says, hey, by the way, Yodis and Syntyche, can you knock it off? Right? Now, we like to do it the other way. <clears throat> knock it off. We not want to kick the door down and say, the Bible says knock it off. No, no, God's, God's smart. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's wise. The Holy Spirit shows you the work of Christ, the servant Christ, the new life in Christ. And then he says, by the way, could you knock it off? Right? There's two ways we could do things. Right? If you're a dog, nibble on a bone, and I want to get that bone out of your mouth, I could come head on. I could just attack you and try to rip it out of your mouth. We probably know how it's going to go. <laughs> Both of us are going to get hurt. Or I got this dog nibble on a bone. You know what I do? I show him a steak. And he says, well, this bone is really not much like that. Let me get that steak. And you drop the bone. God doesn't charge in and say, hey, Udius, hey, Syntyche, knock it off. He says, hey, look at this steak. Look at this life you have. Look at this servant you can follow. Look at this fellowship you can have. And by the way, knock it off. Right? And that's the way that we should do with people. Don't just attack them. Show them the truth of the Bible and let the Holy Spirit gently tell them, knock it off. Knock it off. And that's what he's saying. Knock it off. At the end of the book, he tells these two good ladies, hey, knock it off. Just come together and knock it off. And if you look at 21 to 23, you'll see that final exhortation to unity. He says, salute every saint in Christ Jesus. Amen. 22, all the saints salute you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. It's about unity. You want joy in the church? There's got to be unity in the church. And cliques are a sneaky thing. It ain't who gets invited to your house. It's how you see each other and how you trust some people and don't trust other people and have little factions in your mind, the little rulers in your mind. That's the stuff we got to pull down so we can work together. Because if we're at the end of this thing, you know when you're in football and you're like fourth and inches and you can do that quarterback sneak to try to get over the foul line, the goal line, foul line, I'm sorry, I'm stuck in basketball, get over the goal line, you know what to do? That whole team just pushes together. You ever see them? They just push together to get that running back or that quarterback just to get the, either to push that hole open or just push that guy through. They got their hands on their butt. They're just shoving that guy into the end zone. They're all working together. And we're supposed to be, please don't touch each other's butts, but we're supposed to be, all be working together to get to the goal. Somebody's going to be over here. Somebody's going to be there. Somebody's going to have the ball. Somebody's going to be way in the background. We're all pushing and working together for the same thing, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we love you today. We thank you today for this wonderful book, for this thing you left in your word. We pray we learn what we have to learn from it. Help us be guided, directed through it. And may you get all the glory from our time together, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.